Father, thank you that your word is indeed a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we pray that you would illumine that path now through your word. Help us to see what this means in our lives today. May we grow to trust Jesus more. May we grow more like Jesus as we hear this. Amen. So Jesus' tone changes a little as we turn to this final chapter in his mouth-watering manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, that we've been looking at through most of this term. Uh, We've seen that this kingdom of heaven that we're invited to is a topsy-turvy place where the broken-hearted, the poor in spirit, the humble and the meek are the ones who are blessed. And throughout this, uh, this Sermon on the Mount, there's been this tension between those who take God's law and they deflate it and, uh, they, in order to make its requirements more achievable. A tension between them and those who realise the standard is nothing less than perfection. But even so, that we are invited anyway into relationship with our Heavenly Father through trusting in Jesus. We're allowed to start living this extraordinary life. Relationship is at the heart of this kingdom manifesto. The the Lord's Prayer is right there at the centre of of the sermon in chapter 6. Our Father, Jesus says, the identity of those who belong in the kingdom is defined by those who relate to God not as a distant, uncaring tyrant, but as a loving Father. Last week we saw some of the things that threaten to spoil that relationship. One is getting our treasure in the wrong place, falling for materialism instead of real relationship with our Father, seeking his kingdom. And then from that flows anxiety, worrying about our circumstances rather than trusting our Father. Now Jesus today has a further barrier to enjoying that relationship. It is the fruit of of legalistic self-righteousness. So do you know what legalism is? It's where you reduce relationship to a bunch of rules and you try and use those rules to manipulate what you want. Sometimes we do it in human relationships. So imagine a marriage or even a friendship where one person says to the other, just tell me the rules that will keep you happy. I just want to know what I have to do to stay out of trouble. Right, so, okay, on Monday it's uh, take the bins out, tick, okay, dishwasher on Tuesdays, hang the washing out on Wednesdays, flowers on Thursdays, tick. What what, what do you mean you you want to spend some time talking? What what do you mean you want to go out for dinner? dinner? You know, what do you mean you want to hang out together? You know, I've kept the rules, I've done what you asked, now I'm free, leave me alone. I hope that doesn't ring too many bells. But that's not relationship, is it? It's rule-keeping, and we do it with God. I've ticked the boxes, I'm done. Now I can get on with my life my way and ignore him because I've kept the rules. We might even say, oh, I've been to church, I've ticked the God box today, the rest of the day is mine, the rest of the week is mine. Or it goes the other way. Um, I've not ticked the boxes today, and I'm feeling miserable about it. 
So I'd better not try and pray then. Uh, maybe, I, to be honest, I'd better not be a hypocrite and go to church when I've been such a miserable failure. I'd, I'd probably just better give up. Legalism is a big problem for Christians. Actually, it's a big problem for non-Christians too, in a more subtle way. There's exactly the same attitude at work in so many of the ways we relate to each other in the world. And and I say this of non-Christians, it's true of Christians too, because the world influences us. We spend so much of our time demonstrating our worth to one another. So think about social media, it it just magnifies this. Uh, There is the humble brag. Now, by this, in fact, there's a whole Twitter account dedicated to pointing these out when people uh, tweet in these ways. Here's some examples. Uh, Somebody says, I just did something very selfless. But more importantly, it was genuine. And I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Hashtag, so worth it. (laughs) Somebody else says, that's weird. I feel too young to be flying on the corporate jet. Oh well, I'll get on anyway. (laughs) Or somebody else says, it's funny how so many people say I look like Matt Damon. I still don't see it. (laughs) Hashtag stunt double. Well, we know, don't we? There's plenty of examples like that. And if we're honest, we will be able to think of ways that we do exactly the same thing. Alongside that, there is so-called virtue signalling. You know, the idea that in almost everything we say, there's a kind of subtext. Look at me. I'm a good person. As I jump on the bandwagon demanding an end to the latest thing that society has deemed unacceptable. Now, of course, there may be good reasons to be on the particular bandwagon, whatever it is. There may not. But so often, actually, our concern is not the issue, but the desire to be seen to be saying something about that issue in order to be kind of accepted as uh, in, as good, as righteous, whatever that means. That is legalistic self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is where our standing before God or before one another depends on our deeds and actions, not on promises, not on love. And here it is saying, those who keep the rules are in, those who don't are out. And if you don't, the mob on Twitter or wherever will not hesitate to ostracise you. So it's an issue, legalistic self-righteousness is an issue for Christians, it's an issue for non-Christians, and in these verses Jesus shows some of the consequences, how legalistic religion and self-righteousness goes wrong. So first of all, if you look on the sheet, judgmental hypocrisy, verses 1 to 6. Do not judge or you too will be judged, says Jesus. Now, it used to be said that the most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. We have it on the wall. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's a verse people hold up at football matches and all that kind of thing. But I wonder these days, actually, if the go-to verse for, for many people out in the world, many non-Christians, actually, is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It's the verse we love to quote, especially back at Christians. Or how dare you publicly defend the Bible's view of marriage? Don't judge, Jesus said so himself. Have you not read your Bibles, you Christians? Don't judge. End of. That's what Jesus says. But actually, let's have a look and see, because that is not actually what Jesus says. 
For a start, it is actually self-refuting, isn't it, to accuse others of being judgmental in order to shut them up. It is, in fact, in itself a highly judgmental attitude. I don't like what you're saying, so I'll quote this to make you be quiet. And then uh, we'll see uh, next week, if you come back then, uh, we'll see that Jesus cannot mean that Christians are to be totally undiscerning, amorphous blobs, as one writer puts it, as Jesus tells his followers to watch out for false prophets, watch out for false teachers. You know, you've got to do some judging, you've got to do some discerning in order to figure uh, who to listen to and who to ignore. And actually, when you think about it, some of the greatest achievements in society have come about when Christians have exercised judgment of one sort or another. So would Christian William Wilberforce ever have relentlessly pursued the end of slavery in the way that he did if he'd been persuaded that Christians ought never to exercise judgment of other human beings' actions? It's unlikely. But look at what Jesus says. When he says, do not judge, what's he, what's he mean? Well, you need to have two things in mind. First is the fact that you too will be judged. Verse 2, if you look at that. Now, he may uh, simply mean that if you go around judgmentally criticising others, watch out because they will do the same to you. If you give, you've got to be prepared to take. Now, that may be true, but there's almost certainly a further judgment in view here, which is the judgment of God. It's so often self-righteousness that leads us to judge others. You know, we have a human standard in mind and we smugly think, well, I measure up to that standard, but you don't. But if our standard is merely human, well, remember chapter 5, verse 48, or over on the other page, the standard is perfection, God's perfection. Who can say they measure up to God's standards? We just compare ourselves to each other. I think we might have had this uh, image in one of the the sermons on Jude a few weeks ago, but it's like winning the high jump competition of the school sports day and kind of sneering at all those who couldn't jump as high as you. Ha, look at me, I've won, i jumped the highest. And then you suddenly realise next week, with no real training and no real talent, you will be required to jump in the Olympics. See, God's judgment is coming, verse 2. So if you're, if you're constantly putting others down, watch out. And then alongside that, in verses 3 to 5, don't be a hypocrite. It's a brilliant image, isn't it? It's the idea of this speck in somebody's eye and a massive log sticking out of yours. Uh, your friend has a crumb of chocolate cake on their lip. And you're enjoying pointing this out to everyone else without realising you haven't just got a crumb, your entire face is smeared with chocolate. Before you criticise, take a long, hard look in the mirror, says Jesus. It's not that all criticism, all feedback, all judgement is inappropriate. Well, there may well be a speck in your friend's eye. They may well need some help with that. They may need somebody to lovingly point that out to them. And it certainly doesn't mean remaining silent on something when the Bible is clear. But in all that, it's not before you've taken a long look in the mirror to check your own eye, your own face, your own motives, your own actions. 
That's what Jesus is saying. In verse 6, there's another startling image, the idea of casting pearls before swine, before pigs. Unlike the speck and the log in in verses 3 to 5, Jesus Jesus doesn't actually explain this image and exactly what he means. But in the the context, the pearls seem to be so-called pearls of wisdom that we try and help each other with. You know, here is some feedback, brother. Here is some feedback, sister. I think it might help you. And Jesus is giving a word to the wise. That there is a time and a place for doing that. And however well intended we are, sometimes the reaction will be to reject what we offer. Pigs don't want pearls to eat. And if what you offer isn't food, they will tear you to pieces. Paul puts it slightly differently in Galatians. He talks about how legalistic self-righteousness in our relationships causes us to end up devouring each other as we tear each other to pieces with wounding, unfounded, judgmental, hypocritical criticism because we're doing that comparing to ourselves to each other on a human standard. Be slow to criticise, he says. Take a long, hard look in the mirror. Remember, the only judgment that ultimately matters is the judgment of God. Now, how do we judge one another in the church? I think there's a whole range of different things. I'm sure you can think of things. Maybe in the area of children. How many we have. How we educate them the discipline standards that we hold them to, the TV we let them watch. Do we consciously, unconsciously think, well, I know better? And actually, you don't have to be a parent to to, to think like that, do you? I'm sure that we all, in different ways, as parents and also as non-parents, have opinions and judgments. Then there is money, how we spend our money how we give our money away, what car we drive, where we go on holiday. Isn't it easy to judge? How ridiculous to hold one another, either consciously or unconsciously, to an arbitrary, non-biblical set of standards in areas where actually God gives us considerable freedom, not just to sort of serve ourselves and do what we like, but considerable freedom to exercise godly wisdom. then we judge our leaders. I do, and I'm sure you do. Now, I'm still relatively new here, uh, but it won't be long if you haven't already worked things out. You know, you'll, you'll discover my weaknesses, if they're not already obvious. And, and then I will also discover yours. But we are children of the same Heavenly Father. We are in a family. So it's ridiculous to spend our lives tearing one another down. So first, judgmental hypocrisy, Jesus points out. And then secondly, the fruit of legalistic religion and self-righteousness, prayerless independence. Now the aim of legalistic righteousness is always to keep God at arm's length. I don't want a relationship, I just want to tick the boxes, I just want to be left alone. And now Jesus reminds us, But if that is what we want, that is exactly what we will get. A life of prayerless independence. We won't pray because we think we don't need to. Well, I've kept the rules and there's nothing else to do. Tick. On with my life. I can do this by myself, in my own strength, or at least I'll die trying. 
Or, on the other hand, we won't pray because we think we're so hopeless that God would never listen to us anyway. Both pride and despair will keep us away from God. Can you see that? Both will keep us away. Both are the fruits, in different ways, of legalistic self-righteousness. Because both assume that you can work your way to God. And if you think you're doing that successfully, you'll think, I don't need to pray. And if you think you're not doing that, you think, well, I can't pray because you'll never listen to me. But against that, Jesus calls for a life of persistent, prayerful relationship. Look at what he says. Verses 7 and 8. Ask, seek, knock. The door is always open. Your Father is always there. He will always answer. Now, we we saw last week, didn't we? Those answers may not always be what we would hope for, what we would expect, but actually that's the same with any father. Dad, can I have sweets for breakfast? Can I stay up till midnight? Can I play football next to the bonfire? Well, in my house, the answer to those questions is no. If it's yes in yours, I'm not judging, but that is how it works, isn't it? You don't always say yes to children. And maybe when they're older, they'll realise why. It's the same with our Heavenly Father. You will be answered. The door will be opened. Maybe in the way you expected and hoped. Maybe in a different way. And when that happens, it's how we think of him that makes the biggest difference. Is he stingy? Capricious? Changing his mind all the time? Flaky? Abusive even? Well, we'll never go to him in prayer if that's what we think of him. Is he extravagant but ultimately thoughtless? As if he's just going to say yes to my every whim. Well, then our approach to him will be arrogant, treating him like a slot machine. And and then just being frustrated when the slot machine doesn't work. You know, press this button, pull this handle, say this prayer, out will pop the answer of your dreams. Well, that's how the machine is supposed to work, but it doesn't seem to be working for me, so I'll just give up. That's not the kind of father that he is. Look at verses 9 to 11 where Jesus explains this with another sort of startling image. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Let me, let, let's test this. Um, who's a father? Gareth. If your sons ask you for dinner, will it be roast gravel and mashed mud laced with arsenic? Could be, wow. <laughs> I'm sure it wouldn't be. But here's the thing, you see. Gareth is evil. (laughs) That's what what Jesus is saying, isn't it? You, though, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. But how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is relationship, you see. It is prayerful dependence. Now, of course, perhaps it feels like you've been praying persistently for someone or something and it doesn't seem to be getting you anywhere. And it helps in those circumstances to keep the focus not on getting what you want, but on relationship with your Heavenly Father. See, it, it isn't about getting what we think is right. It's about expressing our dependence on our Father and trusting Him. Saying, not my will but your will be done. That's what the Lord's Prayer, that's what Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? The door is always open. 
He's always there. He will certainly answer. So pray. And then thirdly, the third fruit, narrow selfishness. Here, Jesus sums up the whole of his sermon so far. There's a kind of bookend here with chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, with with this focus on the law and the prophets. Jesus has been all about showing how the life of his kingdom fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. That's what he's been trying to do so far. He's saying he's not replacing them. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. He's, he's pointing out how the religious leaders have deflated their requirements. He is reinflating the tyre. As we saw when we looked at verses 17 to 20 in chapter 5 a few weeks ago, he is reinflating the law to its true intention. See, legalistic self-righteousness always puts the focus on me and my rights. I've done my bit, I've ticked the box, so it's someone else's turn now. I don't see so-and-so giving the time and energy that I give. You know, why should I be kind to her when she never gives me the time of day except when she needs something? It's narrow selfishness. Now, I realise, actually, Jesus is going to use the word narrow in a completely different way in verse 13, and we'll see that next week. So maybe that's slightly confusing. That that isn't the point. The point is, Jesus is saying, take the blinkers off. He gives this extraordinary command. It's often called the golden rule. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, it's often pointed out that the, uh, the golden rule is not unique to Christianity. Many world religions have some version of it. And yet actually it's often put in a negative way. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. And that's how the rabbis of Jesus' day would have put it. Uh, One of them was Rabbi Hillel. And he was asked to explain the whole Torah, the law, while standing on one foot. And he he said this, he said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of this. Go and study it. So do you see what Jesus is doing? He's kind of picking up on that. And uh, he's picking up, as he does elsewhere, on the last verse of what we saw in in the first reading in Leviticus. We had all those lists of commands, and you might have been wondering why we were reading this. But the last verse, chapter 19, verse 18, it's right there in the law, all along. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't just refrain from murdering your neighbour. That's so easily how we think, isn't it? Well, I haven't. I could jolly well have murdered him, and I haven't, so that's, that's good. And I haven't spoken badly of him, I haven't done anything to hurt him, so all is well. But, well, no, that's, you haven't actually loved, you've just ignored. Instead, think of how you, you want to be treated, and treat others in that way. Sometimes people call this paying it forward. Not paying it back, paying it forwards, do you see? But actually, even that, the idea isn't that if you do this to people, they will do it back. It's not about creating positive karma, you know, as people sometimes talk about. It's simply about loving without expectation of love in return. How would I prefer people to love me? Well, I'm going to show that love to them. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Paul quotes Jesus as saying in 2 Corinthians which is not about how to behave in the penalty area while you're waiting for the corner kick it's about how we treat each other in the kingdom regardless of how we get treated back see modern society is all about standing up for rights isn't it pointing out where you've been wronged 
Well, how freeing to be able to say, what matters is not how I feel, but how I love my brothers and sisters. Now, common sense says, oh, no chance. You know, don't, don't be a doormat. You, you, you've got to stand up for your rights. Come on, Who's, who else is going to stand up for you if you don't stand up for yourself? And probably those feelings, and we do feel them sometimes, don't we? We do sort of start to feel, well, some of us do, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I've sort of gone out of my way to help this person, and now I feel like they're kind of using me, and I feel like a doormat, and all that kind of thing. And th- those feelings are there. But I think often when we feel like that, what we're doing is we're acting not really out of love, but more out of fear. Because we, we, we're, we're longing for approval from others. And we all do this in, in so many ways. It's, it, it's part of what it means to be fallen human beings, that we seek that approval in the wrong place. And, and the problem with doing that is a law of diminishing returns, because the kind of the more we do things for others, desperate for that attention and approval, actually, well, the less they notice it and comment, and it just gets worse and worse. But the kingdom life is the opposite of seeking approval from those around us. It's about resting in the approval we already have from our Heavenly Father. See, we are his children, totally loved, totally accepted. And as dearly beloved children, we are free then to love without needing to use it as a means of manipulating others to get what we want. That's the link with verses 7 to 11 before this. If God is good to those who come to him, so must we be, loving and giving without expectation of return. Now, I was trying to think of some well-known examples of this kind of love, but actually the best examples of this aren't people who've kind of become famous for treating people like this, because actually it's harder to see how they have loved without expectation of return. It's more like, well, love like this, and you too could be a Christian celebrity. But this isn't about the, the Christian celebrity, whatever that means. It's about people getting on with living the life of, of the kingdom in our homes, in our workplaces, loving the vulnerable who cannot love you back, whether that is within the church family or perhaps our family members, loving the unlovely who, who frankly don't behave in a way that justifies your love, but you love them anyway. A difficult client, a, a, an awkward neighbour, an estranged sibling. So Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he's not willing to do himself, as he loved his enemies, even as they put him to death. And his perfect love and perfect death means that when we fail to live up to these extraordinarily high, exacting standards, when we fail to do that, as we will, we are still in the family. We still belong. We're still children of our Heavenly Father, and citizens of this extraordinary kingdom because Jesus died for us. So the easy path will always be a life of self-righteous, judgmental, independent, prayerless, joyless, narrow self-love. We can all do that. We all do do that. But we're called to something different. And if this kingdom life that Jesus offers is not something you've personally accepted... Well, it begins and ends simply with throwing ourselves on his mercy. This kingdom life is not a life we can live in our own strength. It's not just saying, sit up, try a little bit harder. It is the fruit that follows first trusting in Jesus and his death. And that's what he asks each of us to do. Let me encourage you to embrace that, if you haven't already. But for all of us, let's, let's dream big, 
not of self-centred, ambitious dreams of self-made wealth and prosperity. Let's dream of this mouth-watering kingdom life of selfless, open-hearted love for others and dependence on our Heavenly Father. Let me pray. Father, we are humbled by these extraordinary standards of love. And we will each know in different ways how we struggle with this, how we fail to do this. And yet we praise you that you invite us into this kingdom anyway, because Jesus died for us. We cast ourselves afresh on his mercy. And we pray that in doing that, as we rest in your fatherly love and approval, that you would then free us from that fear of what happens when we put ourselves out there and love. And that you would give us the resources in your love to love those around us. So graciously point out problems where there are problems around us. So keep on seeking you in prayer as our Heavenly Father and to do to others what we would have them do to us because we are resting in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.